Hello and welcome to Knowledge Engage, the podcast of the University of Nottingham's Institute for Policy and Engagement. The Knowledge Engage podcast is an opportunity to explore with our researchers the work they're doing and the difference it is making. My name is Chris Sims, I'm Deputy Director of the Institute and today I'm delighted to welcome Lucy Jones. Lucy is Associate Professor in Sociolinguistics in the School of English and she specialises in the area of language, gender and sexuality within the broader sociolinguistic field. And today we're particularly keen to talk to Lucy about her recent initiative, which is the LGBT plus youth manifesto. So welcome, Lucy. And perhaps we could start by introducing a little bit about the project and what motivated you to, to pursue this line of work. Yeah, sure. Uh, Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, so this manifesto has emerged from a broader project. It's a British Academy small grant funded project in which I've been doing fieldwork, ethnographic fieldwork. So being a a participant observer in four different LGBT plus youth groups around the North and Midlands. I basically spent a couple of years going along to the groups, all before lockdown, fortunately, going along to the groups, getting to know the young people, getting to understand what their experiences are, being young and LGBT. And the aim of the broader project really is to try and understand how different intersecting experiences impact on their identity. So as well as their gender and sexuality, There's also their age. So the young people are aged between 12 and 20, which obviously is is a big difference, particularly when you're when you're younger. The youth groups themselves are based in different locations. So some are in more rural or urban places. Some have got a lot of cultural diversity in the area. Some haven't. And then also thinking about the young people themselves, what's their social class background, what's their ethnicity, what's their family situation. Some of them are in foster care, for example. So really, it's trying to understand how all of these different factors influence ultimately how they identify um, and how they experience their identity as young LGBT people. And basically, what I've done is a series of focus groups and interviews with those young people. Um, And then more recently, I've gone back to work with the young people to put together a, a manifesto. And the manifesto really is their opportunity to have a voice, to have a say about what they think the country should be doing differently to better support young LGBT people. And the reason I did that was because what came out of the focus groups and the interviews was a great deal of anxiety, anger, uh, frustration about the way that a lot of them have experienced things like healthcare, the experiences they've had in school, and really they just wanted the chance to have a voice. So that's what the manifesto is about. Great. And what, what are the, some of the key messages that are coming out from the project? I mean, in particular, you know, you mentioned that it's exploring what the country can do differently. So in particular, for our, our political leaders, our policymakers, what, what are the key messages coming out? One of the absolute key things, actually, is to do with the provision of youth groups. So the work itself has taken place in youth groups. So somewhat inevitably, we've ended up talking about that. But it's been really clear that the young people benefit enormously from having a safe space where they can be themselves, where they don't feel judged, where they can explore aspects of their identity that they might not feel able to at home or in school, and where there are qualified youth workers who can offer them just fantastic support and be an advocate for them. Those youth groups quite often are funded 
on a charitable basis. A few of them are funded by the local authority, but the youth service generally is under a lot of pressure. And that is only going to get worse as we enter the post-Brexit, post-Covid situation. And frankly, there's going to be less money to go around. So one really important thing here is that the youth service, in particular LGBT provision within that, really needs to be properly resourced. And as I say, one reason that it's so desperately needed is because of the experience a lot of these young people are having in school still. So although things are undoubtedly a lot better than, you know, when you or I perhaps were at school and the era of Section 28, there are still a lot of teachers who feel completely unequipped to talk about issues to do with sexuality or gender, who just don't have the information. There isn't always time to talk about it in school. There's still a bullying issue for a lot of these young people in school. So the the government really needs to step in and offer more support to the people who are caring for and educating our young people and um, to make sure that they feel safe um, and to make sure they've got somebody that they can talk to. So I'm quite struck with what you're saying, Lucy, about young people's experience, especially in schools, because I think, you know, among people of my generation, I think there's a perception that things are a lot better now than they were for LGBT plus young people. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, you know, I grew up during Section 28 and sort of an overtly hostile environment, I guess. So I think a lot of people my age might be a bit surprised to hear that that the issues are still as as serious as they were. Is that something, did you find that when you were doing this uh, research, did you feel surprised personally by that? Interestingly, One of the points on the manifesto is the young people wanted to get across. Adults think everything's okay for us now because it must be better than it was when they were young, but it isn't actually. And so one of the points in the manifesto is that they want there to be national information campaigns, some of which could be actually targeted at adults to just give more information about the reality of being LGBT+, particularly, I think, for a lot of the identities that the young people hold that, frankly, adults just don't understand. People have always identified in this way, but they haven't always used that label. Um, And so I think one area where some hostility is maybe too strong a word, but some kind of marginalisation of young people is because the way that they identify just isn't really understood by an older generation. So that's part of it. But I think actually more broadly, there is still bullying. You know, I I think it's just absolutely the case that kids who are different still experience bullying and discrimination in school. So there's a problem from other young people, but also that there isn't a great deal of representation in the national curriculum. So it's not a requirement that LGBT plus identities are integrated into the curriculum where they might be relevant. So for example, if if in a an English literature class, you're talking about a playwright or a poet that was gay, the teacher may or may not choose to talk about that, depending really on how comfortable they are with it and whether they're even aware of it. But what the young people are saying is, if that could just be mentioned, if it could just be part of the conversation, that would normalise it. That would help us to feel seen and to feel like we're not other or we're not strange. So even though we don't have a kind of hostile policy against LGBT plus people, inclusion and representation could still come an awful long way. Yeah, absolutely. And so a lot of the things you're talking about are, I guess, things that need to change at a national level. There needs to be you know, clearer leadership, you know, things like the curriculum and so on. But are there things that, that come out from the research that people can do, easier changes that people can make at the day to day level, you know, if we're talking parents, maybe talking governors, maybe talking people working in education at the local level. What are some of the the things that could could easily be done locally to improve things? 
So obviously the ideal, as you say, is that we start to see change at a policy level, which needs to come through national leadership, really. But there's an awful lot that people could do on a local level as well. I mean, there are already some fantastic organisations that are supporting schools, for example, in being more inclusive when it comes to tackling LGBT phobic bullying, for example, in integrating these issues into the education. Organisations like the Rainbow Flag Award. There's a, a charity Educate and Celebrate. There are bigger organisations like Mermaids um, and Stonewall. Lots and lots of different organisations who are small, often grassroots organisations who just desperately want to help people to do this kind of work and to make things better for young people. So I would say that parents as well as teachers could certainly look into this you know they could they could see what those opportunities are and if schools aren't already doing this you know maybe that's just because they're not aware of it as I say it's not currently a requirement within for example sex and relations education there is a requirement to talk about for example same-sex relationships and same-sex families but there's also an opt-out system and they don't have to be talked about in a great deal of detail they just have to be you know they exist that's not really quite enough to properly support young people. So I think that parents and teachers could perhaps look into this and make suggestions themselves, looking at the great deal of resources that are already out there to support this kind of work. Great. So one of the things that I really like about, about your work is that it's not it's not just coming up with some really clear and powerful policy messages, but it's a genuine piece of co-creation of, of actually co-creating research with, with the young people themselves. And I'm really interested to know a bit more about that process and how you, know, how you experienced it, but also what the response of the young people was to, to being involved in a piece of research like this. You know, I'm, I'm assuming that this is not something that many of them have done before and it might be something quite new to them. So, yeah, it'd just be really interesting to hear a about your your experience there and particularly you know if this is also a way in which it can be a tool for building trust you know amongst a group of young people who often I think have reason not to feel particularly trustful of older people. Yeah absolutely I mean that was that was a really important part of this for me was that from a kind of broader scholarly level you know the information that, that I get from the young people I'm going to go on and do you know, some fine-grained linguistic analysis, that's going to be really useful for my very specific small field in telling us how identity works through language and the role intersectionality plays. But given the topics we're talking about, given the information the young people were telling me, it just felt so important to do something useful with that and to get their voices heard because they are lacking agency as young people anyway. You know, young people don't have a huge amount of control over their own lives and their future, but as marginalised young people, often coming from situations where their gender or sexual identity isn't supported, to give them the opportunity to actually say, well, this is what we think, this is my lived experience, and this is this is what would make things better for me right now, this is what would have made things better for me in the recent past. It's very empowering, actually. And the young people have responded really well, either talking about very specific experiences or talking more broadly on a, on a kind of a very politically attuned level about how they think that things should be. It's really humbling, actually, to work with them, to, to hear their experiences and to have the opportunity to help them voice those ideas as well. The reason that we've done it as a manifesto is because it allowed the young people to, in quite a powerful way, say, right, this is what we're demanding. This is what we want to see happen. But crucially, releasing it as a social media campaign, which is what we've done on, on Instagram and on Twitter, means that they can see it in a format that makes sense to them. There's 12 points of the manifesto and we're releasing them every two or three days on Instagram and Twitter. On Twitter, we're getting engagement from organisations and people who are involved with young people 
you know, in, in a wide range of, of ways, whether that's to do with healthcare, education, social care, education in terms of teachers, but also in terms of policymaking. Um, whereas on Instagram, it's mostly young people and the young people are on Instagram are responding to it so positively and they're, they're talking about their experiences and they can really relate to it. And as I said before, I think representation matters. They are the ones who can tell us what it's like to be young LGBT plus people right now. They're the ones that have the experiences. They're the ones that can tell us what they need. And actually, they're the people who are best placed to inform policy. One thing I'm curious about, really, is, uh, you know, I think there is often a sense that we speak about the LGBT plus community as though that's a single coherent thing, when actually, of course, there is enormous diversity within that community. And not all parts of that community always agree with other parts of that community. So I'm curious as how that might have manifested in your research and whether there were disagreements within the group of young people that you worked with. And if so, how you how you resolve that when coming up with something that everybody could sign that sign up to? Absolutely. And, and as I said at the start, intersectionality is a, a really key thing here. So whilst, you know, within LGBTQIA+, there's a huge amount of variation that kind of gets lumped together. Also, even just within that, within the L or the, the G or the T, there is huge variation depending on, you know, somebody's specific circumstances, the other identities and experiences that they bring with them. So for me, the whole research was was fundamentally about the fact that we treat LGBT plus as this kind of homogenous entity. And that kind of is how it ends up getting treated in in things like policy as well. But of course, there's huge diversity. So really, the aim of the, the research is for me to try and really get to grips with how those different experiences intersect together and what effect that has. But you're absolutely right, of course, that also means that not everybody within those contexts can necessarily all relate to having the same experience. For example, um, an awful lot of the young people that I've worked with are trans or non-binary. Do they necessarily have the same experiences or the same difficulties or challenges as a cisgender young person who identifies as gay or bisexual, for example? What I found, though, was that there really wasn't any conflict. I was kind of anticipating that people would talk about very different types of experiences. But really, the young people themselves seem to see on the whole themselves as LGBT. So they used LGBT or LGBT plus or LGBTQ. They used that kind of umbrella term as a label to define themselves. So they would say, I am LGBT, which is very interesting. You know, for me, someone of my generation, I identify as a gay woman. But I'm I'm also cisgender. And so I would never say I am LGBT because that means a whole variety of different things. And I'm not part of all of that. But these young people were absolutely using that label to define themselves. And I think for me, that seems to reflect their relationship to the other young people and the youth groups. So they see themselves as all together, doing something together, working together, you know, interacting together, supporting each other, even though there's a myriad of different experiences within that context. And for that reason, bringing them all together to work on this manifesto, it wasn't strange at all. It made complete sense, actually. And even though quite a few of the points are about trans and non-binary young people in particular, that was with the full support of the cisgender young people who would chip in as we were talking about it and say, yeah, absolutely, that's really important. Or, yeah, you know, my friends experienced that. And it was wonderful, actually. It was it was wonderful to see. So, yeah, a real sense of unity and actually Although they recognise the differences between them and how they impact them individually, I think they really were seeing themselves as as together. 
there's a lot of people that will see that as very encouraging thing to hear that's uh, that's really good to know great so actually just to say on that um the other thing was that a lot of these young people they haven't actually got a label yet they don't quite know what label if any they want to use and so I was actually asking them you know how do you identify and I was kind of charting certain demographic information for my research and quite a lot of them were saying I don't I don't really know what I am yet I don't know what one of them described said I think I think of my gender as being cosmic like you look through a telescope and you can see all of the stars in the sky and all of the things that you could be and I don't quite know where in that I fit yet which was wonderful um and similarly with sexuality people sort of saying I'm not I'm not sure you know I'm only I'm only 14 I don't know yet I just know that there's something about me that I want to explore as I get older and that's the other thing the groups are giving them the opportunity to do that without feeling that they need to pigeonhole themselves or label themselves I think a lot of the anxiety around trans people in particular and trans young people is this sense that young people are kind of making rash decisions about their identity and actually that's not what I've found in this research at all people are exploring and being supported in exploring who they are at their own pace and I, I think that's really important I think from this stage on it's about how can we really advocate for them based on what they've told us In that sense, I think the research has a very clear policy and and kind of public engagement aspect. But I think it's also important to say that I will then be able to go on and learn an awful lot more about the reality of young people's experiences by looking at the language, by looking at how they are communicating with each other, how they're framing their experiences through the language that they're using. And that ties in really to a kind of broader philosophy within queer linguistics, which is my field, which is about kind of unpicking norms and ideologies and expectations and understanding how do people deal with them. So how do young people who are living in a world where you're still told it's normal to be heterosexual and cisgender, how do they live their lives? How do they negotiate that when that isn't how they identify? So ultimately, that's what I'm hoping to learn more about through the linguistic analysis as well. Great. Thank you. So where can people go to find out more about this project and particularly the manifesto? So the manifesto, it's lgbtmanifesto.co.uk. That's the website and the full manifesto is listed there. Uh, But we've also been sharing the manifesto on Twitter and also on Instagram. And it's just lgbtmanifesto. That's the handle for both of those. And right now we've got nearly 400 followers on social media and it would be wonderful to have even more people joining us and helping to spread the young people's voice. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's all we have time for today. So Lucy, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Lucy, for joining us. And thank you to you out there for for tuning in and listening. Lucy's kindly given us some of the links to find out more information uh, already. But if you didn't catch it, then you'll find links to some of these issues in the notes to this podcast, as well as information on how to find out more about the Institute for Policy and Engagement.